and Steve Willman, and I will re be reading John 5, 1 through 18. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool where the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See... You are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. My name is Jessica, and I'll be reading John 5, verses 19 through 47. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son does also. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. 
I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he has sent. You study the scriptures diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, that you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Hey, everyone. Thanks, Stephen Jess, for, uh, for reading that really long passage. Um, we're in the part of the book now where uh, of John where things get really extended. So um, uh, it's, it's a lot to get through, but it's worth it to read every verse, we think, still. Um, thanks also to Dio and Sheena and Drew, who've read uh, in the past for us as well. We thought it's a fun way to kind of hear from people that you're not able to see on Sunday mornings uh, to have them read the passage for us all each week. Uh, welcome to, if you're uh, new with us this Sunday morning, uh, for this edition of Res Resurrection City Church at Home. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Res City. We're very thankful that you're with us this Sunday morning. Um, just a reminder as well, at the end of the sermon, we're going to be doing question and answer time. So if you have any questions about anything I bring up in the in the sermon, anything in the passage that I maybe don't get to that you do want to hear about, or, or anything that kind of comes off of stuff we talk about today, throw it in the comment section of either YouTube or Facebook, wherever you're watching and we'll try to uh, get it in here, and I'll try to give you my best uh, response that I can. Also, don't forget, we're going to be doing communion after uh, the sermon as well. So if you have stuff uh, in your fridge that you need to get out or uh, from your kitchen, uh, go ahead and grab that now maybe real quick or during the Q&A time so you're ready and you're prepared to uh, take communion with us. Um, now, uh, we, like I mentioned and like you saw from Stephen Jess, we are actually going to be getting back into the book of John after last week. And I admit I wrestled with whether or not do we want to continue to specifically address kind of what's been going on in our city uh, in the last couple of weeks here because we don't want things to get back to normal. And it's going to be really easy for us to do this, right? Uh, I think a lot of us are remembering there's a pandemic going on right now that we're still in the middle of. Um, and summer is starting up. We're, we've been reminded of that this week with how warm it's been getting. Um, and summer, especially for us who live in Minnesota, means a lot of stuff. It means a lot of heading out to the lake. It means a lot of kind of getting away from stuff. It means a lot of rest after what's usually a hard winter for us. Um, but we don't want things to just return to normal. However, like I said, we are getting back into John. And I will explain that uh, to you and how we, we kind of plan to sort of keep up momentum in talking about um, uh, what, what it looks like for us to seek out justice and seek out um, uh, like a good response to what's been taking place in our city while also returning to where we were in the book of John. But I'll explain that when we get to in the, in the passage because I actually think today's passage is a great sort of um, a reason for us to get back into John in the midst of it. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Um, so uh, if you, you'll remember, uh, it, it kind of 
verses 17 to 23 of what you just heard. I think it, it's, it's, a, it's kind of the fulcrum of the passage. And in a long passage like this, it can be hard to know what's the thing that sort of holds it all together. I think this is it. I think this is that sort of central piece of it. So let me read those to you again here. John 5, 17b uh, through 23. This is Jesus talking. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they, these Jewish authorities, tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it to. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whatever the fa- or Whoever the fa- Father does not honor, the Son does not honor the Father, who sent him. Okay, so here's what's going on in this passage, and here's, this is why this passage holds everything together. Jesus gets himself in trouble, and we'll talk about this for a couple of reasons, but the main one in this passage is that he links himself uniquely to God in a way that no one else can claim to be linked to God. All right, he talks about how the Son, which is him, he sees the Father, and only he sees the Father. And so his actions, the things that he does, are the things that he sees the Father doing, which, again, no one else is privy to that information. So he mimics the Father at the Father's direction. We see him talk about how the Father does resurrection in life and the Son does resurrection in life. And the, the Father gives over to the Son some things that only God does. Judgment we see specifically in the passage. And, and even, and this is, this is, in, this is crazy. This, this part is maybe the craziest part of all. The honor that God deserves should also go to the Son. This is what Jesus is saying here. It's kind of like a, an idea where you have a, a, a legal authority is being transferred over to someone else um, that belongs to, to maybe an elite figure. It's been given to someone else, their son or some other authorized representative. And, and, and it's what it's saying is this representative can, can, can rep me however they choose. And for whatever they choose to do, that's what I desire. They speak directly for me. Even if they go and speak their own words, they're speaking for me. That's, what's, that's what Jesus is saying here. And so the big idea, and, and I think maybe you, you hear this and you think it's not that, not that like shocking of a thing, but I really want us to press into this because the big idea here is that if you want to know who God is and what he looks like, then you should be fixing your gaze upon Jesus. Okay, this is a simple but, but very powerful idea that when we look at Jesus, right, and we look at Jesus every single week here, everyone loves Jesus, right? There's not very many people out there who dislike Jesus. Maybe they don't like, they don't like Christians, but they don't, like, they don't mind Jesus too much. When we look at Jesus, we are seeing God and what God's actions are. And so when we want to know who God is, and everyone is, you know, many, many people are seeking out who God is. What does God look like? We should start with Jesus, and we should start nowhere else, because only Jesus has this unique link to the Father to actually show us who the Father is, to reveal to us who the Father is. 
Even in Scripture itself, we should be taking other passages and, and, and taking them and interpreting through the lens of who Jesus is and what Jesus' ministry looks like and what Jesus does for us. Okay, That gives us the most clarity about God and who God is and what God does. Because uh, God has spoken to us in a language that we can easily understand when he speaks through Jesus. And that is the language of, of an obser- observable, lived-in human life, right? We can know who God is because we can actually see in practice and in word and in deed who Jesus is and what he does, which points us back to the Father. It's kind of like the difference between... Um, actually getting to drive a car around for a while and, and knowing what that car is like, what, what, its, um, what its features are, how it handles, as opposed to just looking at a picture of it online and maybe reading about, reading about some of its features. There's a big difference between actually getting to see those two things. And when we look at Jesus, we actually get to see a lived-in uh, version of God. We get to see God in practice, not just talked about, not just abstract ideas, but actually lived out in practice. We get to see what that looks like specifically. Now, there's a lot of payoff here when we really grasp that idea. Okay, when we Jesus, when we see Jesus do or say something, even if it's taking place in a very maybe normal setting in his time period, we are we are see, uh, he is saying to us what God wants to be heard. Okay, think about that a little bit. When we see Jesus treat someone a certain way in a certain passage, we are seeing how God wants that person treated or what God thinks of that person or that person's maybe authority. Okay? How we see Jesus live, because he's human, he's, 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 he's fully God, he's fully human, how we see Jesus live is how we should imagine God desires us to live as well because of his humanity. And so, like I said, I really, I, I did wrestle a little bit with whether or not getting back into John was the right idea. But actually, I think, here, here's my approach. I actually think this is maybe the best place for us to be, okay? Because Jesus is God revealed to us, and because we need to know what God has to say about our current crisis, how God wants us to respond in the midst of our current crisis, we should look at Jesus and expect to see what God's response is for us. Okay, God revealed as Jesus, he speaks to us in all of the nooks and crannies and the corners and the, and the places of our lives uh, that, that we, we maybe don't necessarily know what to do with. Um, as long as we're willing to look, we can see what it is that God's desire, I think, is for us in the midst of all of this because we have seen a human living it out. Okay? And the thing that we're all facing is this, right? What are we going to do in response to the events of the last week and everything that's led up to it? I think b- people are becoming aware of the fact that we're living in the midst of history right now. We really are. Like this will be in history textbooks or iPads or whatever kids you know are using 30 years from now to, r- to learn about history or, or plus, right? This will show up inside of those things. Both the pandemic we're living in the midst of and the, the sort of tipping point I think that we're seeing in, uh, in, in racial justice and racial equality here that in our in our in our country that and we're at ground zero of it here in our city and, and so um, we haven't forgotten that stuff right we want to continue to talk about the midst of history that we're living in but I really think there's no better place to look than at Jesus himself okay so when we look at Jesus I think it's important for us to understand what's happening that his, we see his ministry made up of of two elements basically and those two elements are this that Jesus is a healer, 
So Jesus does healing. And Jesus is a prophet. He speaks prophecy uh, um, to, to people that he comes and in, inter- interacts with. Now, both of these things get him attention. First of all, healings, signs, and wonders. Uh, mostly, mostly their healings. And, and we see people start to come to him for it. He starts to kind of build up a reputation because of the healings that he's done. And we've talked about that uh, several times now in the past, these sort of signs and wonders, the things that get him attention and get people really excited. People start following him because of it. We talked about in our, our last um, passage in the book of John. We see him do that again here. The second thing, we've also, we've also drawn attention to this as well since we've been in the book of John, and this is his sort of prophetic ministry. And we talked about this um, when we, we spoke of Jesus uh, and his action at the temple in, back in chapter 2. This was a little bit further back. Um, but we, we see, e- even in the book of John later on, people refer to him as a prophet. They, they think of him as a prophet because of what he's doing, sort of speaking challenge and speaking God's word into the specific situation that people are living in. Now, now, both of these elements of Jesus' ministry, his healing and his sort of prophetic ministry, speak directly to us where we're at now here in 2020. And we see both of them very clearly in this passage. So what I want to do today is I want to walk through those two elements and talk about what the payoff or what it looks like to follow Jesus if Jesus is truly uh, God, truly revealed to us in, in, in a language that we can understand and that we should also be speaking what it looks like for us to be healing and, 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 and prophets, in a sense, in our own time and age here. So first, let's talk about the healing. Okay, well, let's go back to, to verses 6 through 9, John 5, 6 through 9. Now, when Jesus saw him, him as the, the invalid, this, this, this person who couldn't move, lying there and learned, what, uh, uh, learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. Okay, so clear example of healing. Um, This is the second time in the book of John that Jesus has healed someone. But let's talk a little bit about the specifics of what's going on here. So first of all, let's actually talk about the guy that he heals, this this person who's referred to as an invalid. And if you've never heard that word before, uh, it just means someone who's confined to home or bed because of an illness, a disability, or an injury. Now, we don't know what his injury is. We don't know if he's paralyzed. We don't know if he's... His legs just don't work for some reason, but whatever it is, he can't, he can't really move on his own. He needs someone to help him get down into this pool, so he is just waiting there to try to get into it. Now, apparently, there's a legend that said that this pool has some mythical qualities uh, to heal people when it gets stirred, and, and the pool is named Bethsaida. Now, the, the pool probably gets stirred by um, intermittent springs that would kind of uh, feed into this pool and sort of cause a disturbance intermittently. Um, and apparently, we know this from outside sources, too, there was a redness to these springs that filled this pool up, and, and there were ancient witnesses who, who talk about the popularity um, of this redness that apparently that made people think it was medicinal. So it makes perfect sense that this guy would have this thought. And when you're someone like this, this guy who has really no hope of healing, you're willing to kind of, you know, look into anything. But he's been, so he's been waiting to get in this pool for a long time, but he can't get in there himself. Someone else always beats him into the pool, kind of blocks him off from getting in there. Now, Jesus walks over this pool. He sees the guy laying there. He recognizes his situation, and he says, hey, dude, do you, do you want to be healed? Like, I'm guessing you do. You want to get in this pool. Now, 
Now, the, here's the thing that we should recognize about this guy. Uh, John, the author of the book here, he sort of paints this guy not as like a humble, friendly guy who's down on his luck, but he actually kind of paints him as more of like a crotchety old cynical guy who's just been jaded by his his predicament. And and so when we hear him say, sir, I have no one to help me get in the pool, we should probably read it more like, well, mister, I'd like to get in the damn pool, but I don't have anyone to help me get in there. Right? That's kind of his response. It's kind of a snarky response back to Jesus. And we see later on, he doesn't seem that, that sharp or even grateful afterwards. Um, he, he tries to avoid difficulties with the authorities by blaming Jesus for being the one who would heal them and told them to get up his, his mat and walk. He, he's really unobservant or just uncaring about who the person who actually healed them was. He doesn't even know who it was. He didn't even get a look at Jesus. Um, and, and when he does find out, that it was Jesus, he actually goes and tells the authorities. Um, and the fact that Jesus tells him to stop sinning in verse 14 or something worse may happen to you might indicate that there is actually some, some sin that he'd done, some, some, something not that you know, great that had kind of led to his infirmary, kind of got him to where he was at. So like, this doesn't, we don't actually get a great picture painted of this guy. So basically, if you're a first century nonprofit and you're putting together material to try to get people to donate to your organization to help care for people who are sick, you probably wouldn't put this guy um, in your marketing material. He probably wouldn't make it into the video, right? He's just not, he's not, it's not the, there's no social payoff for Jesus in healing this guy, okay? Not really in gratitude. Um, in, in, instead of gratitude, Jesus gets into trouble. Um, and, and not really in perception. Jesus is not, there's no Facebook likes to get here. Um, they're, they're, and, and socially, this kind of person is not supposed to be worth the time of a, a rabbi and a would-be Messiah, a prophet. People wouldn't expect him to take his time out for this guy, right? They would expect him to pay more attention to the royal official who showed up to, to talk to Jesus in the last passage, right? Right before this. Okay? Now, despite all of that, despite everything I just said, Jesus chooses to heal this guy. And I think we learn something from God from this encounter. Remember, again, remembering that, G- that Jesus is God revealed to us. And, and here's our first point of application off of that. Jesus is a healer even when he gets nothing in return. And we are called to follow that pattern of being healers, even if we don't expect to get something back in return. It's enough to just heal. It's enough to just restore, even when we don't get something back for it, okay? And we're seeing a picture of the gospel here. If we really pause to think about it, because the gospel is this, the, the royal king and creator of the whole universe extends to, to everyone this gift of grace to, to, to people who are unfitting of, of, this, of this weight and glory of the gift that it's coming to, right? They, they, they are not deserving of it. It does not fit who they are, right? They have no real uh, claim to deserve what's coming to them, okay? And if we think that a gospel ethic, right, a lived-out version of, of living in the midst of this gospel event where we're given this gift that we're undeserving of, if, if we expect that living out the gospel is going to be consistent with its core belief, then that means that the way that we live uh, consistent with it is that we should, when we have opportunities to extend similar gifts to someone in need, we should do it, even if there's no payoff for us, even if the people we're giving to seem for some reason to us to be unfitting of the gift, right? And we can create all sorts of reasons that people might not be fitting of our time, right? We're very good at that, okay? But, but even if that, even if we feel like that's true, we should not hesitate when we can help someone else by giving them a gift to sort of help them be restored or to heal. 
okay? Not because it's safe, not because it's comfortable, not because we're going to get lots of attention on social media. Even if we're going we're gonna to receive some sort of a limp from this, we're going to be set back in some way from giving, okay? The, the, the call to follow Jesus is a call to be a healer and a restorer, even when the effects are difficult to bear, even if the, the return on investment does not seem to be that great, even if it's uncomfortable for us to do so, that's our call, to follow Jesus in that. Now, at Res City, uh, many of us are affluent. Many of us have lots of resources to give. We have time. We have money. We're educated. We're, we're a highly skilled and competent church. We, we really are, okay? And many of us have privilege. If we're, if we're being honest, many of us have plenty of privilege that can help us out uh, to help others. The, we, we have the ability to heal. We have the ability to follow Jesus. And the only thing that's going to be stopping us from doing it, frankly, is ourselves. Really, really, we are going to be stopping ourselves if we kind of pick reasons to, to stop ourselves from being healers at the current moment that we live in, sort of on the heels of just the, the long-term effects of the atrocities of racism and, and sin and evil and just the disgusting things that we've seen as a society, okay? Our, our call is to follow Jesus in healing. Now, when now, here's the other thing about this. There actually is some payoff for us. There actually is actually some good for us, but we often miss this. And I, and I think I was really alerted to, to the power of, of being around those who are less fortunate than ourselves. When we were on, on actually on Friday night, we, were, we had this discussion around the movie Just Mercy, and, and we had a, a good crowd of people there. We had some really great discussion. If you haven't gotten a chance to watch the movie, I highly, highly recommend it to you. But the movie centers on a man named Brian Stevenson, who... Um, at, the movie, at the beginning of the movie, he's a young lawyer who is, is kind of starting this thing called the Equal Justice Initiative. And he's sort of g- grown that and it's become pretty famous and speaks at a lot of events. And um, Miles was actually helping to lead the discussion on Friday. And he actually got to see Brian Stevenson um, speak one time and had took some really good notes of it. And one of the, one of the things that he says, uh, he said at this talk that Miles was at, was about the power for us as Christians, because Brian Stevenson is also a Christian, uh, the power for us as Christians in being around the poor, um, in, in being around the poor for any reason, but especially in healing them. And here, here's what he says. We are called to get closer to the poor. Our faith comes alive when we come close to the poor, and there is power in proximity to the poor. Standing next to those who suffer is a portal to God's greatest glory. Now, why is that? This is such a profound statement that I think we could peel this onion in many different ways. But I think one of the one of the big things that that stands out to me when I hear that and when I really uh, sort of meditate on it is that when we are putting ourselves around those who have a lack in some way, we are reminding ourselves of our own lack. We are getting a, a gift because it's reminding us of who we actually are. That we're no better off than those people, but we can we can trick ourselves into thinking that we're somehow better. We're somehow um, you know. Have, have less need of the gospel, maybe, in our everyday lives um, because we have everything taken care of for us a lot of times. Like a lo- many of us will go our whole lives without truly being afraid of losing our livelihood in some way. But when we're around, peop- when we're around people who, who have faced that many times, we are reminded of the fact that, that that's us too. And we see that the earnestness and genuineness of their faith and their need for the gospel, it reminds us of that as well. It gives us a picture of that that we are going to be numb to many times because of our own affluence. And, and, and on top of all this, right, many 
people are going to have the attitude that only certain people are worth their time. Maybe those who suffer, maybe those who are poor are not worth spending their time around. Okay. And and this is true. We're going to see people, you're going to see people on your social media. You already probably are seeing people on your social media saying things like, uh, you know, oh, either look at the George Floyd stuff, they'll look at the riots and say, that was bad. But but those who rioted, they forfeited their, their rights to being helped helped or maybe george floyd he wasn't that good of a dude actually look at some of his past I, you know th- this is all kind of uh kind of a uh, uh, fake news right like we're, we're treating this guy like a hero and really he was pretty terrible and that's gonna make me feel like i need to sit out of this right uh, or maybe people will say we could give money to help this but some of the people will be giving money to they would just abuse it we couldn't trust them with that money um, or, or maybe people will say, I, I want to see them earn it first. Um, I, I want to see them deserve this before I'm, I'm willing to give them my, my, my help or my time or my money, okay? And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be smart in our, in our healing, right? I'm not saying that, that the gospel itself doesn't have maximum in, impact because it does. It brings out of us a righteousness that we didn't have before, right? And we should be strategic with our gift giving and with our healing and with our resources, okay? We should aim for that. But we should not use this as an excuse uh, not to follow Jesus, all right? Because if we're honest, it's going to be more comfortable to, 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 to find ways to not be healers like Jesus. It's good, and, and we need to fight against that. We need to challenge that within our own hearts, okay? That's our call, is to be helpers and healers for those who are, who are unfortunate, who, who, have, who have not have what we have, the resources that we have, just like Jesus does for us. That's the heart of the gospel. All right, let's, let's move on into the passage here a little bit more to talk about the second element that we were talking about, the, the prophecy aspect of it. So John 5, 16 to 17a. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, this is healing the guy and telling him to take his mat up and walk, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day. Now what, what trouble does Jesus get into here? Uh, the issue is that this man carries his mat on the Sabbath, and, and, and he kind of throws, like I said, we kind of said, he kind of th- ends up throwing Jesus under the bus a little bit, but Jesus tells him, dude, get up and walk, take your mat and walk, and apparently carrying your mat around was something you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. Um, now, I just want to give a quick note before we talk a little bit more about the issue at hand here on the authorities here. Uh, in a lot of uh, translations, it's going to say the Jews. Um, they just kind of refer to them as the Jews. Um, thankfully, the NIV translates uh, the word there as Jewish leaders. The actual, uh, the actual Greek word is udaioi. Um, and and what, it prob- what it most likely refers to, or the best way to translate it, is the leaders of the sort of Judean uh, religio-political uh, structure. And particularly the people who oversaw the temple. These are people who held really most of the power in Israel, other than the Roman leaders who were in the area there. Because of their connection to the temple, they had all this political authority as well. And they're part of a, a regime, a, a family that approved of the Romans. And, and Jesus, or John's harsh words in the book are for them, not, not for all Jews. I think that's something to remember here. So when Jesus is challenging these people, he's challenging authority. He's challenging um, political leaders. Now, the issue that's at hand for them is that Jesus is doing this all on the Sabbath. And, and, and so if you're not familiar with the idea of the Sabbath, um, back at the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, God works for six days to create the world, and on, on the seventh, he rests. And so under Jewish law, Sabbath is observed by imitating God for one day a week of resting. 
Um, and it was a time, it, it was to time what the temple was to space, okay? So if the temple is a, is a physical location that marks off um, God's presence, then the Sabbath is a, is a location in time that marks off the holiness of God. And we're supposed to give it a respect or a reverence, or the people of Israel were supposed to give it a respect or a reverence that they would give to the temple. That's what, that's what the Sabbath is. Now, Jesus' response to them when he, you know, breaks the Sabbath, according to these Jewish authorities, is that God is always working, even on the Sabbath. Now, we know from other writings at the time, sort of more common rabbinical or Jewish thought, that they actually would have no objection to that. They understood that God had to keep working on the Sabbath if he was going to make the world uh, work. Um, They would have no objection there, right? Now, Jesus says, now here's the explosive thing is what we already talked about, that Jesus compares himself to God. He says, oh, God's working on the Sabbath. I'm working on the Sabbath. That's making me equal to God. And that was like, that was the thing that got him into a lot of trouble eventually here. But later in the book, Jesus is actually going to call out the authorities for their uh, blindness or their hypocrisy. In, in chapter 9, we're going to see that. Um, because they're actually blind to what really matters here. And, and Jesus would know, right, coming from God, that, th- that they think that they see what's important. That law and order, that maintaining the status quo of following these laws that they'd really made up. And if you want to um, know more about sort of maybe the process of that, you can ask about that in the Q&A. But, but really, um, these people are blind to what God is actually up to when he shows up. They're more concerned with law and order, with maintaining the status quo. And Jesus is going to challenge them on this. Okay? He, he prophetically critiques them for their blindness, for their uh, hypocrisy, in, in focusing only on what they think should be lawful and maintaining the status quo. Okay, and this is sort of a common pattern of what prophets do uh, in the Old Testament. And, and what God is up to is always going to make people in power uh, nervous, okay? And that's what we see time and time again with the prophets. They're always getting into trouble with authorities. And the reason for this is, is because what, what, what Jesus is prophetically speaking, what the prophets are always prophetically speaking about, is the establishment of a new kingdom on the ground of an old one. Okay, that is challenging the, challenging the rules of the old kingdom with the rules of a new kingdom that is, that is breaking in on it, that is, is speaking of a better way of life, a better way of living for people than the one that it's replacing. And so the application for us here, this is our second application, is that Jesus is a prophet who sees challenge to authority as necessary in order for the kingdom of God to come. And we are called, again, to follow him in, in, in challenging authority as necessary in order for the kingdom of God to come. Okay, this is what prophecy is. Now, prophecy is hard to define, and we could spend a lot more time talking about what prophecy looks like in the Bible. But, but here what I mean is this, and this is a pretty broad definition of it, is, is challenging things that oppose God's word, taking root in people's heart, and bringing hope by following up and preaching God's word into that. After you have sort of challenged the thing, bringing the hope of what God is actually doing into the midst of people's lives. That's what prophetic speech is here. And I think we see Jesus do this all the time. Okay, we saw him specifically do it in the temple. And we see he's not afraid to shake things up. Okay, sometimes, again, this is going to be uncomfortable. We should be ready, though, like Jesus, to challenge the status quo authority wherever it stands in the way of the kingdom of God of justice and of mercy. Now, I want to talk a little bit about what that looks like for us. And I think really there are three ways we can talk about this, or at least three ways for us today specifically. The three levels of challenge to authority. 
Now, the first one, and everything always flows out of this, so it's important to remember this. The first one is a spiritual challenge to spiritual authorities, okay? Our job is to challenge evil forces that sort of prop up and propagate and use human institutions to bring about things like sin and destruction and racism, okay? Just pure and simple. And this is where the roots of racism really come. Now, this is why last week we focused on repentance, we focused on the gospel, and we always focus on the gospel because that's how we challenge against these spiritual authorities, is by repenting, by, by believing the good news, and by, by uh, giving our allegiance and our worship to Jesus, okay? By, and, and by doing that, we grow the kingdom of God as, as, as what we do, as we follow and believe in that impacts the spaces around us. We are challenging the spiritual authority, now, the spiritual authority, it spills into many other buckets, but I want to focus on two today, okay? One in which it necessarily spills into is, is, is political. So when we're talking about challenging authority, we're also talking about challenging the ways in which um, the spiritual uh, sin, of, of, of specifically of racism, which is what we're talking about here today mostly, is, spills into the political realm. Okay, and so Jesus challenges political and religious leaders. So this is what he does time and time again. And it's okay for us to also do it as long as we're doing it for the kingdom and we're not allowing that to get sort of wrapped into some, some party or human institutions. Now, the ways for us to do this, are, are, are there are lots of ways for us to do this, okay? Uh, there have been people um, who have been protesting uh, from Rest City, and I fully support that. I fully um am totally supportive of that for people. Julie and I, in fact, marched this week with a group of other clergy in St. Paul as a way to show solidarity and challenge to racism and sin in our city, as a way to say, we, we've had enough of this, okay? And, and, and so if that's a way that you want to engage, engage, right? That is a good way to challenge authority. Other ways to do it, though, there, there are many ways to do it. Other ways are to wisely post on social media, okay? Emphasis on wisely. There are good and bad ways to post on social media, and you're going to find lots of examples of both. That is one way to challenge authority is through your social media. But, but bigger ways than that are through, through voting, through signing petitions, through stepping up where the government is maybe failing and help in your neighborhoods. Help bring hope and healing to people in individual specific ways. Don't just rely on government to fix everything. Go out and be healers yourself. Um, Pray for those in power, though, okay? Don't just challenge them. Um, be willing to pray for them, that they would, would follow uh, and live out wisely uh, ruling over creation, which is what the, the, the role of government is supposed to be. Pray for them, that, that our leaders would do that. Befriend them, right? You might have, uh, we have c- uh, city council members who live in our very neighborhood here, me and Julie. You probably have people that live around you, too. Get to know them if you can, okay? Get to know people who, are, who work in government. Try to, try to get to know them. Try to become friends with them. Try to, to use that friendship to sort of help to, 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 to wisely and, and caringly, you know, challenge them to, to work for good um, with, the, with the, um, the platform that they have. And for those of us who, who work in government, because I know that there are people at Red City who work in government, um, if you work in government in some way, uh, the call is for you to be ready to, to sort of challenge the system from within, to challenge against the status quo or, or doing things just to, to make the public happy, whatever that looks like, even if that leads to, to, to more problems, like to challenge that from within. That's, that's our call. And that's why it's good for Christians to work in government, I think, um, is because we have a chance to sort of uh, get involved in that way. That's the second type of challenge. Now, here's a third one. I want to talk a little bit about this one specifically because I think it's sort of unique to us. Um, 
and where we're at right now. So uh, in the book, Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, um, uh, which was written, I think, very prophetically in the 40s, especially on this point, um, it, it's a book, it's a, it's a fictional account of two demons who are writing back and forth to each other. Um, one of them is an older kind of, uh, like, uh, higher up in the army of, of Satan, and he's he, he's trying to help his younger, uh, I think it's his younger nephew, um, in in the ways of sort of tempting people away from God. And it's it's such a profound book because it, it, it is so, it pays so, such close attention, I think, to the way in which the world actually is um, that you, as you read it, you can start to understand the ways in which our hearts get pulled away from God. And one of the things that I think is, is unique to speaking to us is the ways in which distraction um, can, can pull us away from from keeping the kingdom of or from letting the kingdom of God spill into our lives and the lives of others. And so the realm I want to talk about here is like the realm of our attention. Now there's a great there's a great quote in the book from Screwtape where he's he's writing to Wormwood and he he's talking about the ways in which to sort of distract people uh, to keep them amused so that they're not taking a part um, in, in, in worshiping God and seeing that influence their lives. He says, "You will say that there are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness." Okay, now we definitely see that, right? And that's the sort of thing that shocks us into attention. We saw spectacular wickedness when we all saw what happened to George Floyd a couple weeks ago. We've seen spectacular wickedness at other times, right? Ahmaud Arbery, um, uh, whatever the, the videos that we see online, those those shock us into attention. But but do remember, Screw Tape says, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate. Um, the, uh, the, the man from God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. And he's talking here specifically about using distraction or amusement to keep this person that uh, uh, Wormwood is, is supposed to be um, uh, impacting away from following God. Now, the enemy, the architect of racism, will keep us from, from shutting racism and sin down by uh, entertaining us to our heart's desires, by amusing us to death, all right? Telling us our happiness is all important, that our comfort is all that matters. And, and all the while, uh, underneath our noses, right, underneath our, our amused noses, um, this, the evil of racism is going to keep working unknown and unhindered, okay? And that's the distraction that many of us are going to feel, okay? It's going to be hard for us to care about mercy and being a healer when we're, we're more concerned with the next trending topic on social media. Julie talked earlier about how the, how the, the, the media turns itself over all the time. And, and this, you know, we're already seeing that happen here today. There are going to be other things that are going to come up that are going to take away our attention, Right? It's going to be hard for us to care about justice when we can't stop thinking about whatever new uh, phone has just come out, whatever the new cool app is, whatever new piece of technology is out there for us. Okay? It's going to be hard for us to care about justice when that happens. Okay? It's going to be hard for us to care about the poor being fed when all we can think of is whatever you know, all the restaurants that are being opened back up again. Now we can't wait to get back to those and enjoy some good food again outside of our own house. Right? These are the, the ways in which we are going to be tempted to be, to be amused so that we do not take a part in, in sort of pushing back against um, the evil and the racism and the injustice that we all were shocked into seeing here recently. And we can't let that happen, which means we need to prophetically challenge ourselves and challenge uh, other, uh, you know, the status quo authority that's going to kind of call us back into this, right? There are... Um, 
There are, are institutions that are dedicated to keeping us amused and keeping our attention on them so that we keep them happy by, by, uh, by giving them stuff out of our wallet. And we can't let that happen, okay? We have, we have to be called to, to challenge against that. And that's the call, I think, uh, of speaking prophetically into what our society specifically is today. Okay, so as we close today, I, I want to return to this idea of Jesus as God. And I want to return uh, to this idea of when we see him, we are seeing God as he truly is. When we talk about seeing God as he truly is and, and, and knowing who God is and responding out of that, what we're talking about is we're talking about worship. And, and it's, it's, it's just so clear that when, we, when false worship is taking place, injustice always follows. It's different types of injustice. It's different types of, of institutional problems and sin. But it always follows when, when, when false worship is taking place, which is why it's so important for us to know God as he truly is so that we can worship him in truth. And the way to worship God in truth is to look at Jesus. That's what is so important for us, okay? And so that's, that's the final challenge here for you today is to, to look at Jesus, to stare at him and gaze intently on him and to keep uh, engaging with us as we go through the book of John and continue to look and to see who God is as he's revealed in Jesus and what that looks like in that sort of lived-in way, okay? Because that's going to be our focus as we continue to go through the book of John. I'm going to close this in prayer, and then we'll do some question and answer. Okay, we don't have any question and answer. So I'm actually going to just close this in prayer, and then we will do um, some communion. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you chose to reveal yourself to us in your son Jesus so that we may know who you truly are and we may follow him closely because it is written for us in a language that we can understand, the language of, of human action. God, I pray that you would help us to, to be healers, God, to, to heal those who we have been called uh, to help to heal, Lord. There are so many people that are hurting in our world, hurting from sin, hurting from injustice, God. And we can, we can choose to respond to them in love, following Jesus, or we can choose to respond in apathy and in ignorance and in amusement, God. And I pray that you would arrest our hearts so that we follow you in loving those around us right now, especially as we see them so much more clearly maybe than we have in the past because of the events of the past couple of weeks, God. I also pray that you would give us wisdom to know how and where to challenge God in a prophetic way the institutions around us that want to keep up the status quo, that, that desire comfort as opposed to justice, God. Help us to see those clearly. Help us to see ways in which we can be a part of challenging those things so that we may be a part of your kingdom expanding on earth here as it is in heaven. God, that's our prayer today. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, who reveals you to us. Amen.